Thank you, BJ. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, heirs also. I'll stop right there. As a church, and that is from Romans 8, by the way, as a church, we are committed to foster care, to adoption. There have been a number of uh, many, well, many, many cases, actually, a very surprising number, proportionately, uh, of, of foster care and adoption cases here in this church. And, and the thing about adoption is it has nothing to do with the child's love for the parent. It has everything to do with the parent placing their love on that child, with the parent's intention to care for, to protect, to provide for, to nurture that child. And that's why God's adoption of us as his children is such a powerful picture of the joy of salvation. And all of that is laid out in in Romans 8. And I'm going to conclude today's message. Don't get real excited yet. (laughs) I'm going to conclude today's message when I get to that conclusion with an adoption story. But as you look at at the, if you looked at the bulletin, you'll notice, wow, Romans 8, 31 to 39 again. And you may be wondering how many sermons can be preached from Romans 8, 31 to 39. Well, for me, two more today and next week. Um, there's a good reason for that. Of course, Romans is, is the key doctrinal book in the New Testament. Romans 8 is the conclusion to the major doctrinal argument of the key doctrinal book of the New Testament. And it is, it is, it is the capstone, the crown of the argument of Romans. And Romans 8, 31 to 39 are the jewel of that crown. So if there's any place, really in the New Testament, that you want to dig deeper, it would be here. The, the entire passage is in a question-answer format. And, and the questions that are asked and answered in, in these verses are personal. They're not impersonal. The pronouns are, are we and us. It's not about what. It's about who. And the focus is on your assurance and your security as God's child if you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ. And, and by the way, this is going to sound a little weird to most of you, because we don't usually talk about this, uh, but there are certain numbers in the Bible that have spiritual significance, like the number seven and the number ten. Uh, and, and when they are symbolic, they show completeness and uh, perfection. And here there are seven questions. There are seven calamities mentioned that we may have to endure. And then there are ten items listed, listed that can never separate us from God's love. It, it, I don't believe that's in coincidental. Uh, I, I believe Paul is saying this is where you get the whole package. Complete. Perfect. The love of God in Jesus Christ our Lord is everything 
and he will never let you go. Now today, our focus is going to be on verses 35 to 37, but first, I want, to, want us to review verses 31 and following. Verse 31 begins the first of seven questions. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? In the Greek language, if God, they have different kinds of conditional sentences. If God is for us is called a, a condition of certainty, not a condition of uncertainty. In other words, it's, it's not if God is for us, and we really, really, really hope he is, that God is for us. It's, it's better translated because God is for us, or since God is for us. Who is against us? And the, and the subject of the questions in, in these verses, verse, verses 31 to 33, is God the Father. So why is the statement, God is for us, a certainty? Because the whole argument of Romans 1 through 8 is summarized in, in verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? And, and the form of this argument, and we've taught about this before. Uh, I've taught about it. Lewis has taught about it. But the form of this argument, uh, I don't think we've talk, touched on that. It, it's called a fortiori. It's from the greater to the lesser. If the greater is true, how much more is the lesser true and to a greater degree? If the number one is less than ten, how much more is the number one less than a hundred? So if a, if, a, if a father gives a deed to a $500,000 house to his son because of his deep love for his son, he's not going to begrudge him, begrudge giving him a house key. Okay? You want the key? Just who do you think you are? Get thee behind me. You know, what, what kind, that's, now that's the form of the argument. Here's the meaning. If God did the greater thing by giving us the gift of his son, how much more will he do the lesser thing? Freely give us all things. Do you see the argument? To consider that God would say no to the lesser after giving the greater is just absurd. It's the same argument that we see in Romans 5. If God did the greatest possible thing in saving us, well, how will he not keep us saved? That's the argument of Romans 5. So if, if God is for us, who is against us? We do face things that are against us. Challenges and trials in life. And what do we make of these things? Can hardships and trials in your life do anything to change your status before God to make you less loved, less saved, less secure? The answer is no. Verse 33, who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. And sometimes, as we've said, people get caught up in debates over predestination and election in, in verses 39, uh, 29, 30, and 33. Every once in a while, somebody will ask me the question, do you believe in election or do you believe in predestination? And I'll say, of course, don't you? I mean, it's all through the Bible. Now, there are other issues like how you define that term and how you place it in relationship to free will, which I also believe in, which is for another day. But the, the, point, the point is, if God chose you 
for salvation, which is what election means. You are saved, period. This is deeply comforting because if you chose yourself for salvation, you could unchoose yourself. Does that make sense? But if God chose you, you're in. You are saved, period. He will never unchoose you. First, that's not the kind of God he is. And secondly, there isn't something about you that he did not know. Something about you that he has since discovered that would cause him to rethink his choice for you based upon information that he now has but he didn't have before. Right? So, what Paul is saying is, hey, excuse me, think doctrinally here. (laughs) Think deeply here. Apply the atonement of Jesus on the cross to your, to your present circumstances and how you think about yourself. Who will bring a charge against you? God the Father? Not possible. The Father is the one who justifies. God has already declared us righteous. It's the Father who so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. And we've already seen this repeatedly. He's already mentioned it, in fact, in it's, it's made very clear in Romans 5.1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. In Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. So, verse 34 asks our fifth question. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. So, since the Father's off the table... What about the son? And the question is phrased just right. Who is the one who condemns? Because the word condemn describes the action of a judge. Jesus said the father has committed all judgment into his hands. In John 5, 22, not even the father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the son. So does Jesus condemn us? No. For those of us who've placed our faith in Jesus as Savior, he is no longer our judge. He is our lead defense counsel when we have the accuser of the brethren satan jesus died for us he can't do anything more than that secondly he's interceding for us verse 34 says he is interceding for us first john 2 1 says he is our advocate with the father and third he is preparing a place for us john 14 tells us Why is he preparing a place for us? So that we'll never be separated from him again. That's what this is about. No separation. We will never be separated. This is not the work of somebody who is neutral towards us, looking for some sort of a chance to get rid of us if we embarrass him some way that he doesn't anticipate. Now, so in in verses 33 and 34, they put forth the question of any possible opposition in the heavenly courts against us? Is there any lingering worry that something can happen after we die that we didn't anticipate? And the answer is no. It is finished. There is no condemnation now for us. And now we move into new territory. In verse 35, in verses 35, we move from the court of law to the area of relationships and family. And, and now the truth of our security is just, just wrapped up in statements about Jesus' love for us. The sixth question is asked in verse 35. 
Who will separate us from the love of Christ? And, and the question separate, it has another bookend at the end in verse 39. Nothing will separate us. Nothing at all can separate us from him. So separate and separate here. What's in between? He lists all possible options that could separate us from Christ's love. In, in, verse, uh, in the seventh question, he lists seven items. Will a tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Each one of these trials, if you're going through them, might make you wonder, does God really love me? Because if he did, why is this happening? It's a very real list, by the way, for the Apostle Paul. Every one of these items on his list is something he himself faced or is facing. Six of the seven he's already experienced, the first six. And the last one, the sword, the executioner's sword, is something he always lives with, by which he will die. And here's the deal. Within two decades, within two decades, everyone who's reading this in the church at Rome will go through this list. They will experience this for themselves. That's why this is absolutely crucial. They need to know this. We need to know this. So, none of these can separate us, can separate you from the love of Christ. And and the phrase, the love of Christ, is an important part of his statement. He doesn't say, separate us from Christ. He says, separate us from Christ's love, the love of Christ, even deeper. And and this is the important thing. It's not your love for Christ, it's Christ's love for you. The love that originates in Him. Sometimes you may feel like you don't love Jesus enough. Or you don't love Him all the time. But that's not the point. It's not about you and the quantity or the consistency of your feelings. It's about Him and his love for you. Oh, my dear brother and sister, make sure that you get this. If my salvation depended upon the consistency and fervency of my love for Jesus, I'm toast. But if it depends on him, if it's anchored in his love for me, I am his and he is mine. Now, what about those afflictions? He doesn't say they won't come. They will. In fact, he even quotes Psalm 44 as proof. And I'm going to ask you to turn to Psalm 44. I want you to think about how you would expect these verses to have been written. I mean, I would, in a way, I would have expected the Apostle Paul to go straight to verse 38. And have him say, you know, that, that there is nothing that can separate us from the love of Christ. And then go straight to verse 38. I'm convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities, you know, nothing can separate us. But instead, he's got this list of trials. And then he quotes from this Old Testament psalm, Psalm 44. Just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all the day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. And then in 
in Romans 8, he continues, but in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. And by now, you should be feeling a little bit of whiplash. What? How, how does he go from there to here? Okay. What is Psalm 44 about? It, descri- it describes the lament of those who are following the Lord, but who are suffering. Suffering things like tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, sword. This, is a t- this psalm is, is 26 verses long, and it's all about how God went before Israel in the past, and so the plea is, Lord, please, fight our battles now. It's a cry of frustration and lament over how God can delay his deliverance from those whom he claims to love. Lord, we've been faithful to you. But how long, Lord? We're we're in a nightmare of oppression. And God, you seem to be taking a nap. Where are you? And across the globe, today, thousands of our brothers and sisters are facing persecution. Paul's not talking about your best life now. He's focusing on the suffering that comes from following Jesus in this broken world. Now, if you look at at Psalm 44, look at verses 1 to 3. In these verses, if you zoom in, the psalmist is expressing trust in God based upon his deliverance in the past. Oh, God, we have heard with our ears. Our fathers have told us the work that you did in their days and days of old. And he describes what God has done in the past. And then in verses 4 through 8, He expresses his hope that God will do the same in the present that God did in the past. But then in verses 9 through 16, he introduces a problem. The problem is, that's not what's happening. This is not our experience. God hasn't delivered us. We are defeated. We are oppressed. And the dilemma is laid out in verses 17 through 22. If Israel were oppressed due to sin, maybe to due to lack of faithfulness, which they did at times, and they were oppressed for those reasons at times. But this time, that's not the reason. If they were oppressed this time because of their own sin, that would be at least somehow understandable. But the dilemma is that they, this time they've not rebelled. This time, that's not the cause. This time, they are faithful to the Lord for once. So the, the psalm in, in verse 22 is the cry of the believer who is suffering in spite of their trust in God. Look at verse 22. For your sake, we are being killed all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered, which, and that means either they're, they're always in danger of death or that members of God's people are being killed and continue to be killed and continue to be killed. Either way, the point is, They're not suffering because of punishment from sin. They're suffering in the midst of being faithful to God. Now, do you see why Paul would quote from Psalm 44? You see why that verse gets quoted here in Romans 8? Because his point is, Lord, we're trying to do the right thing. And this is not far from Romans 8, 28. God causes all things to work together to good, for good, to those who love him, to those who are called according to his purpose. So God uses godly suffering as a part of the all things that work together to bring about his result. 
Look at the last five verses of Psalm 44. Psalm 44, verse 22. But for your sake, we are killed. We are being killed all the day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Arouse yourself, O Lord. Why do you sleep, O Lord? Awake. Wake up. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face and forget our affliction and our oppression? For our soul has sunk down into the dust. Our body cleaves to the earth. Rise up. Be our help and redeem us for the sake of your loving kindness. And Paul is saying he did that. It is finished. He has redeemed us. And because of what Jesus did, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. Look at verse 37, Romans, back in Romans 8, verse 37. In all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. I want to point out three important things about this verse. First of all, he doesn't say apart from these things. He doesn't say in spite of these things. He said, says in all of these things, we conquer in them. In the midst of the circumstances. These are the all things that work together for good. So in the midst of this, we look to the Lord. And he is our anchor. He is our hope. He is the one who gets us through, who walks with us through the valley of the shadow. Secondly, I want you to notice the phrase we overwhelmingly conquer. Now, some of your Bibles may translate that differently. The NASB translates it, we overwhelmingly conquer. King James, NIV, RSV, ESV translates it, we are more than conquerors. J.B. Phillips, in his paraphrase, says, we, will, we win an overwhelming victory. <laughs> the idea of all of those is, is really the same. And, and, and the reason why it's a little hard to translate is we don't have an English word for that Greek verb, but here's what's really interesting. The Greeks didn't have a word for the idea either. So Paul made up a new word. You don't find it anywhere else. And this is the only time you find it in the New Testament. It's a compound word of the word hyper, or hyper, if you like that part, uh, it, it, which means above or beyond or super, Okay with the word nikao, which means to conquer. It's the common verb for victory. That verb is found 28 times in the New Testament. And, and you're familiar with the anglicized ver version of nikao. It's, it's noun form uh, nike, and the goddess of victory, nike. Some of you have tennis shoes that say nike on it. That's where it came from. Okay. So <clears throat> you didn't realize you were wearing theological shoes, did you? And some of you would like to overwhelmingly conquer in your theological shoes. But, you know, there's so many really bad jokes that come to mind now, but I'm just going to put my best foot forward and move on. Okay. What Paul is saying, he's created this new word. We hyper-conquer. We super over above conquer. And, and through him who loved us. Now, the question is, who wins the victory and over what? Some say, well, that what this means is we are super victors before any either human or divine court of judgment 
that any accusation, what he's been talking about in the context, because of what Christ has done. Others say, well, it means so we stand firm now in our testimony for Jesus, despite being like sheep to be slaughtered, we are conquering sheep. Uh, again, from the context. I, you know what? I think they're both exactly what he has in mind. It's not an either or. I think that's a both and. I think the, the second one is a subset of the first one. This has got to be one of the most, as I mentioned, one of the most amazing whiplash statements in the Bible. There's, there's a serious gap between being overwhelming conquerors and being sheep for slaughter in the previous verse, right? After listing all those horrible things that we endure, he says we overwhelmingly conquer. Is it, I mean, is this cognitive dissonance here? Uh, affirming conflicting truths like this pain really feels great? Is he trying to manufacture some sort of victory out of what looks like sure defeat against all uh, truth? Now, the Bible is filled with paradoxes that are true and consistent with the way God works. We save our lives by losing them, by giving them up. We lead by serving. We conquer by being conquered. We live by dying. God uses apparent defeat to produce ultimate eternal victory. Jesus' death on Calvary that looked like Satan's victory actually brought about Satan's defeat. Jesus' death brought about the death of death. And in our suffering, because of Jesus' atoning death, burial, and resurrection, we are overwhelmingly victorious. Not because of ourselves, but because of Christ who gained the victory. Jesus blazed the trail for how we are to process suffering. Suffering was God's will for the Son. Remember in the garden? Father, let this cup pass from me, but not what I will, but thy will be done. And as sons and daughters, we cannot say when we suffer and the result is our maturity in God's glory, that's not right, that's not fair. No, that's exactly what God intends. He intends us to grow and become more like Jesus and to glorify him through the trials of dealing with this broken world. And I want you to notice the third thing on the, in this phrase, through him who loved us. Not through him who sustains us. Not through him who saves us. Both of those are true. But that's not what he's talking about. And if you think about it, why is Paul even going through this? Why is he even talking about this? Why do we have verses 31 to 39? Because the passage is not necessary for the flow of thought of the book, but it's here because God has a greater point, a deeper point, a richer point for all of us. And here is his point. If, I mean, if you want guarantees of no persecution, of no suffering, of no heartache, of no disappointment or no pain, you are reading the wrong Bible. But as we live out our lives in this broken world, God wants you to know who you are. And he wants you to know whose you are. And that's what these concluding verses are about. No matter how you may feel about it, you are the object of Jesus Christ's love. This past Tuesday, 
I was in a county courthouse downtown for an amazingly joyous celebration. A pastor that I'm mentoring, his name is Ben, his wife is Judith, and they adopted a two-year-old boy named Sean. Uh, Sean was their foster child. They picked him up from the hospital when he was born. So they've had him with them for two years. Just the, the paperwork is sometimes, it just takes a while, especially when you can't find parents, uh, birth parents. So uh, it's taken a while, and uh, they adopted Sean on Tuesday morning. Sean had no idea what was happening, uh, but there were about 50 or 60 people there swirling around Sean. And uh, they were celebrating the fact that this child's future was being made secure. He was being loved forever, and that was happening legally. And legal is important. That's what the doctrine of adoption is about, where we cry out, Abba, Father. And this little boy was playing on the carpet with a car, clueless about all of us who were there to celebrate his destiny, to celebrate his security. And it had nothing to do with Sean's love for his parents. It had everything to do with their love for him, for this precious boy. And the, the emotions in the moment of the court ruling when the judge made that pronouncement. And I should tell you, the courtroom was filled with those of us who were there for that purpose. There was nothing else going on in the courtroom. It was just us and the judge and the various magistrates. Over there in the witness, you know, where the jury sits, you know who, <laughs> it, this was not planned, a lot of children filled that up. And the guy sitting next to me, and he said, look at that. He said, those are all kids who were adopted in this church. Over there in the jury box. The emotion of the moment when that judge made the ruling really just totally took me by surprise. It hit me too. Where that dad and mom, that moment, were able to say, you're mine. You're mine. No one can take you away. That's what God does for us in Christ. And if you do not have the assurance of that relationship with God as your father, so that you can cry out through, your adopt, through adoption, Abba, Father, I'd love to talk with you about that. I'd love to talk with you after the service about what it means to become a child of God through faith in Jesus Christ. In a moment, we're going to sing the song, Oh, the Deep, Deep Love of Jesus. And I want you to listen carefully to the words and sing them to the Lord, especially the last stanza. Let's... Father, 
we thank you for your love for us. We thank you for how deep it is, vast as the ocean, absolutely free. I thank you, Father, for what it means for us to be your children through adoption because of the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Lord, I pray that as we complete an understanding or continue in an understanding of how secure we are because of your love for us, that that is a truth in which we would revel and our souls would soar and respond in obedience to your word. I pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.